So I'm using my phone. So if I'm squinting, it's because it's a bit of a small print, small print. Um, So the common questions we get is, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow good people to suffer? Why aren't Christians allowed to have fun? Might be particularly relevant to tonight's passage. So these, these things that we're going to cover tonight, and we're going to split it up. We've got three sort of sections. So verses 1 to 6. I'm going to talk about verses 1 to 6. Then Esther's going to talk about the middle section, verses 7 to 11. And then I'm going to come back and look at the end of the passage, verses 12 to 19. So if we look at the first, those first, first six verses, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. Is Peter being a bit of a party pooper? The start of that passage, the first word in the chapter is therefore. Whenever there's a therefore in the passage, it's quite handy to go back and look at, see what comes before it, to see what the therefore is referring to. So I just want to skip back to a bit of the end of chapter three. So the end of chapter three says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is, at the go- uh, and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Therefore, going into, ver- into chapter 4, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, and so it goes on. So what's all that about? Is Peter saying that if you believe in God, you can't have fun anymore? Is he saying that as soon as you turn to worship Jesus and put Jesus as the centre of your life, that we have to go around wearing sackcloth and ashes? Does it mean that everyone who follows Christ will just have endless suffering and live horrible lives. What we need to understand is part of the culture at the time. You might have heard of hedonism, the long word, hedonism. Hedonism was a popular school of thought in Greek-Roman culture at the time. And what hedonism basically taught was that happiness was the most important thing that you should try and balance it. If you were balancing up sort of pain and pain and suffering and pleasure and enjoyment, then your pleasure and enjoyment should come out on top. And that was the most important aim in life. The most important aim in life was to just bring pleasure to yourself, pleasure to your body. Um, one, of the, one of the philosophers, um, Aristippus of Cyrene, he said, pleasure is the highest good and that the amount of pain should be negligible to the amount of pleasure received. And of course, the trouble with constantly seeking pleasure is that you can never be satisfied. 
We can never be satisfied, however much, whatever it is we're seeking after, whatever it is we're using to get pleasure, over time, we want more. And then we need that little bit more. And then that little fix from somewhere else. So here comes Peter. And Peter's writing to a mixed group. His letter was probably written to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. And he's debunking this whole idea of hedonism. When he's saying, verse 1, whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. So he's not just saying that seeking pleasure is wrong. He's actually turning it upside down. He's turning it on his head. As I said, hedonistic thought was minimise pleasure, minimise pain, maximise pleasure. But Peter's now saying that actually suffering is the way to go. What he's saying is we shouldn't be obsessed with seeking pleasure for ourselves, but following God, doing the will of God. But Peter also knows that living a countercultural life will be noticed. And if Christians aren't joining in with the culture of the time, if we aren't fitting in, if we aren't doing what normal people do, then people ask questions. People challenge us. Why don't you do that? Why don't you swear? Why don't you go out and get drunk at weekends? Perhaps it's even more than that. People get mocked, even abused. But when we become a Christian, we repent, don't we? And we often think of repentance as just coming into church, saying a confession, being told we have God's forgiveness. And of course, that's part of what repentance is. But repentance is sort of a continuous thing. It's about constantly choosing where we're going to fix our eyes. It's about remembering to turn around to face Jesus, adjusting our gaze towards him. It's about making him Lord of all. So when Peter's saying about suffering, what he's saying is, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at the suffering that he's endured. But then we remember what Jesus said in, what John tells us, Jesus said that Jesus came to give life in all its fullness in John 10.10. So when we repent, when we turn to him, it's about making Jesus Lord of all. Lord of our lives, who can give us life in all its fullness. Esther. So I don't know if you have seen a documentary that's on BBC iPlayer at the moment about the history of the King James Bible. If anyone's watched that. If you haven't and you're doing the ironing or something and you want to put something on it, it's fascinating, fascinating. But one thing that I love about the Bible is that often within the Bible you have like a mini version of the story of the Bible itself, like a book within a book within a book. And this chapter is really similar to that for me. You have... The where we were, the cross, and the where we are going, all within this chapter. So often, you know, I teach um, religious education, and I have to teach, you know, within one lesson the Bible, which is, you know, like incredible, a bit like asking me to teach 11-year-olds the Trinity, you know, the government have high expectation, but sometimes they're very high. Uh, but if you think about that whole concept of where we were, in our sin. You think about the law, think about the Old Testament and that whole massive thousands of years of picture of this is what relationship with God 
could be, should be, this is the expectation. And then you reach the end of the Old Testament and something incredible happens. And what then happens is the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And then the church is born and the church gathers their stories and teachings and starts to record that. And then we have the New Testament And so for me, this middle part that starts with this whole concept of living in the spirit and then says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And so we have the passages Brad's just spoken on about where we could have been, where the culture was about uh, hedonism and living for ourselves. And then we have love. We have the cross, the love of Jesus in the middle. We couldn't live up to the law, but love covered sin. And now we are stewards of God's grace. And that for me is the story of the cross. Rather than trying to reach perfection, to reach happiness, hedonism, to reach that ultimate aim, instead we choose to live in a new way of sacrifice, of struggle, of the fight, whatever metaphor we want to give. But as we choose to do that, we get down into darkness with light and we see grace as the light in the darkness. We find that our greatest and our only weapon above everything else is love because we take the love of Jesus shown on the cross with us. And then we find that freely given, undeserved, gracious love. So when we struggle then to overcome and when we're then faced with the reality that life isn't always perfect, when there is tough, difficult time, when we feel like we've got nothing left, And we are constantly giving. It says here about being endlessly hospitable, constantly serving. They can be wonderful things and they can be really sacrificial things. You know, when you've got to find something in the freezer and you don't know where to. And, you know, when you've got to um, give again, you know, I'm thinking about being a parent to a six-year-old, constantly serving, endless hospitality. That basically sums up the stage of parenting that I am at at the moment in my life. But when you're there... And it's costly. In the middle is this unending love. And so the cross shows us that rather than taking away our struggle, rather than making everything about happiness, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, we find that we are stewards of grace, that God puts his presence, his spirit at the centre And I um, was thinking about this and wanted to share a passage with you. This is a little book that I read literally on one train journey, uh, Hanging by a Thread by Samuel Wells. And Samuel Wells is a theologian who's particularly interested in the question of suffering. Um, I basically sobbed my way through a train ride, so maybe only read it if you're feeling particularly uh, confident that you're not going to burst into tears in the middle of the train, or or do, and then, you know, lead people to Christ around you, whichever. Um, But uh, there was a passage here that particularly spoke to me, and I just read it and let that speak but if you'd like to come and photograph it and take a nice bn please do so it says 
God wanted to be with one that could respond, befriend, comprehend. For sure, that entailed being on the receiving end of betrayal, denial, weakness, flight. But all the more, God felt compelled to be with us in person, to be among and alongside and together and amidst. And the cross shows us how deeply we resist God being with us, yet how willing God is at any cost to be with us regardless. And this paradox is perfectly expressed in the scene of the two thieves talking to Jesus on the cross. The first thief can only perceive Jesus as a failed version of working for. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the second thief realises that there's something deeper going on than a cosmic plumber fixing a burst heavenly pipe. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Note that he doesn't say save me, he says remember me. In other words, may I be with you even when you're gone from here. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Being with is what it was all about. God being with us is what creation, exodus, covenant and cross are all about. Being with is what eternity is all about. And you don't have to wait for even for it. You can have it today. The suffering of the cross can't take it away from you. The depth of your failure and folly and fecklessness can't deprive you of it. The barrier of death is not stronger than its power. Being with is paradise and you can have it today. Brad. We then come on to the, the last section, the end, the end few verses of chapter 4. So I'm just going to read these again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. It's quite a hard thing to get our head around, isn't it? being embracing suffering, taking on the suffering of Christ. I was reading a story about Tyndale. He was responsible, he was one of the early reformers, who was responsible for translating the Bible into English. And at the time that he was doing that, the church thought he was being absolutely heretical, that it was, it was forbidden for the Bible to be translated into the spoken language of the people. 
And a lot of that was to, was to do with the power and corruption that the church held by having the Bible in, in Latin. It was the, the, the church could control and tell people what they believed. And so Tyndale was living in hiding and he was translating the Bible and he was selling copies to try and make money so he could do more and make more copies. And the then Bishop of London found out. And the then Bishop of London was furious with what he found out was going on. And he ordered his people to buy up all the copies of the Bible that they could find and burn them. And that's what he did. So he sent his men off and they bought up copies of Tyndale's translations and they burnt the Bible. Now that could be seen as a failure, a failure for Tyndale to get the word of God to ordinary people. But what it actually did was give him the money that he needed to be able to move his work onto a second phase. And that was where the foundation, that formed the backbone of the King James Version of the Bible. So what an opportunity we have when we turn this on its head and we can use things to point to Jesus that look like failure. We were singing earlier, what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. And I think it's really important to grasp the power that the name of Christ has. Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles that the Apostles knew what it means to suffer for the name of Christ. He says the Apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So why was Peter saying about don't be, dis- don't be dis- surprised at Christian suffering? And again, it's really important to look back at the history when Jesus was alive, people expected him to be a political leader, someone who's going to overthrow the Roman, Roman occupiers, kick them out, bring the kingdom of God. Then he confused them all, and then when he died and rose again, people, they were left scratching their heads, thinking, oh, okay, so what's Jesus going to do? And they realised that through his death and resurrection, he would defeat the powers of sin and death. But then they thought that might bring an immediate end to the suffering of people. But of course it didn't. We're in this tension, aren't we? Well, I talk about it a lot. It's one of my favourite things to talk about is this tension between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. But we're in this tension where Jesus' victory hasn't yet been fully realised. There is still sin in the world. There is still sickness. Our world isn't perfect, as we all know. That is to come. That is what we look to in the future. But we still have to expect what Peter calls this fiery ordeal. And it's what's been prophesied in the Old Testament. Zechariah talks about being refined like silver or gold. And Tom Wright was when I was reading Tom Wright's commentary on, on Peter. He was saying, actually, if you see it as a road sign... A road sign tells you that you're on the right path. And so I just wonder sometimes if we see these horrible things going on either in our own lives, in the lives of those we love, or just in the world in general, maybe there is something about helping us to know that we're we're on the right path, that that the future lies ahead. I was at the gym yesterday, don't laugh, I do go to the gym occasionally, and... um, 
the gym. It's got, it's got, a, got a long wall, sort of like probably the length of this, this room. And on it, they've got stenciled motivational phrases along the wall. And one of them really caught my attention yesterday. It says, if you're going through hell, keep going. I don't know what that hell might look like. I think in preparing this, in, in thinking about this passage, I think I've been really made conscious of the fact that actually it's quite hard for me to talk about suffering personally because actually we live pretty comfortable lives. We've not endured horrendous suffering by the grace of God. My family are healthy. But a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to Auschwitz and touring around the concentration camps at Auschwitz and Birkenau and seeing the horrendous, the horror of what happened in, in, the, in the Second World War and just being in that dark, desolate place and just being in the place where there had been so much just unimaginable human suffering. We all experience pain, brokenness, grief in different aspects of our lives. It might be personal. It can be personal to us individually, whether we're experiencing, it could be sickness, having, having illness, disease, you know, infertility, all sorts of things. Or perhaps we experience it through other people, through those that are close to us, through our family, through our friends. And I think often it can be, can be the case. It's, it's harder for us to see other people, those we love, suffering. But even if we can say that our, our own lives are pretty comfortable, you know, I was reminded that that's something, blessed be your name, every blessing turned back to praise. How grateful are we that if we are, when we do experience blessing, when we can experience that comfort, but then we only have to turn on our TVs, bring up the internet, news on the internet, see parts of the world where there is so much tragedy, where there is so much suffering. Paul writes in Romans 12, we weep with those who weep. How do we respond to the last, the least, and the lost? Those living in poverty here on our own doorstep. In that sense, we all suffer because we are all part of the body of Christ. We all endure Christ's suffering because we all suffer, because one person suffers. How do we acknowledge and bear the weight of the pain of others, just like Jesus bore the weight of our, our sin on the cross? And then just to complete the circle, Peter's final verse suggests how we might respond. He says, by doing good. And I think that's more than just staying out of trouble. It's more than just avoiding those sins that he talked about in the early part of the verse, the drunkenness and all that sort of stuff. I think it's more than just following the rules. I think what he's talking about, it's about demonstrably showing that love that covers a multitude of sins. It's about bringing the love of Jesus into the community, into our workplaces, into our relationships with our neighbours, with our friends, with our family, with those we meet on the streets, those we bump into. Not so we can say how great we are, but so that we can point to Jesus, so that we can show how much we trust him, even trusting him in the life that he has given us, 
despite the suffering, despite the trials, despite the troubles that we may encounter. Yes. So let's take some time to pray and reflect and then we'll have um, a little bit more sung, Worship Ruth. I think an opportunity to respond.